The psychology of the human mind is a very fascinating subject. It's been studied extensively, but for the most part, it still largely remains a mystery. In fact, it's one of the least understood things in the world. Nonetheless, a lot has been learned about how the mind works. Let's say you want to try a different kind of cereal for a change. As you stand in the aisle in the grocery store, you will likely find yourself overwhelmed by the number of available choices. And I'm pretty sure you'll agree that's how it is with most things when you go shopping. Be it food, apparel, electronics, or anything else. There are always many choices. That's because people actually prefer to have a lot of options to select from. Ask anyone if they would rather have limited options or more choices. Their answer will likely be the latter. We are back over here in Norman's Corner and you're still here with me, your host for today, DJ Ayana. Now going back to today's topic for Experimental Psych 101, Research Ethics. I know a lot of you guys are so excited for this conversation. Now don't forget to tweet us at Norman's Corner with the hashtag, hashtag ask ethically for your questions to be asked to the expert today. For those of you who are listening to us for the very first time, welcome to Norman's Corner. We know that you will be having a spectacular time here with us. Don't forget to catch us from Mondays to Fridays from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. We are so excited to have you guys here in our Norman fam. Now, here at Norman's Corner, we discuss various topics under experimental psychology. And for today, we have an expert who is going to share with us just what ethics means, what its role is, not just in research, but in everyday life, and of course, the do's and don'ts when conducting an experiment. Without further ado, let me introduce our expert. She graduated from the De La Salle University with a bachelor's degree in psychology, and she also earned her master's degree in clinical psychology. She is Miss Jillian Navarrete. Good afternoon, Miss Jill. DJ Ayana, good afternoon, and thank you for having me today. It's our pleasure, Miss Jill. So before we get into detail about research ethics, what exactly is ethics? Well, ethics, at its simplest definition, is a system of moral principles. It's a basis or a set of standards that we use to help us make decisions, especially when we are faced with issues that have something to do with morality. Hmm. Well, that seems simple enough to understand, but as we all know, ethics can be very difficult to apply in life, don't you think? We are always going to have that one devil on the right shoulder and that angel on the left. Well, I agree with you there, but just because it is hard doesn't mean that it's impossible. Ethics is important in our lives and it's something we shouldn't take very lightly. Exactly, but for today, let's not focus too much on the deep meaning of ethics, let's focus on research ethics, how moral standards are applied in research. We, we will be getting some hashtag ask ethically questions on Twitter. Are you ready, Miss Jill? Okay, let's get into it. All right, so this question is coming from Gabby Fernandez on Twitter, and she is wondering, as the expert, what do you think should be the starting point of a discussion about ethics? What is the most basic thing that a researcher needs to know? By the way, I love you, Ma. Jill. Hashtag ask ethically. Wow, you got yourself some admirers here, Miss Jill. Aw, I love you too, Gabby. And well, to answer your question, the most basic thing, hmm, I'd say we should start by enumerating the basic tenets of research ethics. Okay, the basic tenets of research ethics. That is a mouthful, but I would love for you to elaborate on that. So basically, there are six of them. 
The first would be that society decides what is right and wrong. As humans, it's normal for us to have different beliefs about right and wrong, and because of this, we all have our own biases as well. Okay, now to follow this statement, Miss Jill, is a question from Bea Talusan, and she tweeted, Miss Jill, so if we have our own individual biases, how can we keep ourselves in check? How can we make ourselves and make sure that we are not crossing any lines that we shouldn't hashtag ask ethically? Wow, good question, Bea. To that, I say that oversight is necessary to keep ourselves in check. And what helps us is the Institutional Review Board, or IRB for short. They provide the necessary protections for subjects, both human and animals. As researchers of psychology, of course, our subjects would be humans. And we have to recognize that their participation is vital to the advancement of our field. And so if we do not treat them properly, then I don't think we should be studying psychology at all. I agree with you 100% over there. So you're saying that if we're not sure about what we're doing, we need to consult the rules of the IRB. And we should always remember to put the benefits of our participants first more than anything else. Yes, exactly. You got it. Alright, so what is the next tenet? The second would be that the responsibility lies with the experimenter. Okay, so responsibility to what exactly? It means that the researchers are held responsible for the ethics of the experiment they are conducting. Yes, the IRB exists, but they are not the ones conducting the experiment. The researchers are. It is still the job of the researchers to protect their subjects from any discomfort in the procedures of the research. So what you're saying is that even though the IRB is the big brother or kuya watching over us, it is still up to us to do the right thing in our experiments? Exactly that. And if ever researchers are confused about which way to go, they can always ask their other researchers for their insights. Okay, that's true. That makes perfect sense. Another important thing that researchers should remember is the risk that they are exposing their participants to. I see. And is this another basic tenet? Indeed it is. Researchers need to determine whether their study will pose minimal risk to their participants or will they be completely at risk. Okay, we have a new question on Twitter. It's hashtag AskEthically from, of course, we have here Palm Nolasco. He's asking, what is the difference between the two? Minimal risk would mean that the risks posed by the research are no more than those encountered in daily life. It means that if I choose to participate in a study, my safety would still be the same as if I didn't participate. At risk, on the other hand, means that if you choose to participate in a study, you'd be placing yourself in a completely different level of safety than if you don't choose to participate. Okay, Pom, I hope that answered your question. But if there are studies that place participants at risk, why do, why do participants rather still choose to participate in those studies? Well, that's another good question. And to that, I say that this is where the role of the informed consent comes in. Okay, informed consent. I know I've heard this before, but could you explain that? An informed consent is something that informs the participants of all aspects of the research that might influence their willingness to participate. It's the chance of the researchers to be transparent. A participant may have read the consent form, signed it, but chose to withdraw in the middle of the experiment. Okay, so what actually happens if they want to withdraw? Do you just stop them? No, absolutely not. This is the next basic tenet, the freedom to stop. They are completely free to withdraw, but before letting them leave, it is the researcher's responsibility to ask them why and how they can improve their study. 
I see. Well, you've certainly given us a lot of things to talk about. Thank you so much, Ma'am Jun, to everyone who tweeted us some awesome ethical questions. I think this is the perfect time to take a break. Stick around, Norman fam. After the break, we will be discussing the last two basic tenets, and I believe we have two special guests that we will be talking to later. Don't go away for too long. We'll be right back. And now back to John with the weather. Yes, Andy. Tonight, a big storm. Storm this! Get the soccer offer from Pizza Hut and Pepsi. With every two medium pants Super Supreme, you get a real soccer ball and four cans of Pepsi for free. Yes, a real soccer ball and four cans of Pepsi for free. Don't miss the Pizza Hut and Pepsi soccer offer. With every two medium pants Super Supreme, you get a real soccer ball and four cans of Pepsi for free. What about the weather, Andy? Don't resist and call 19,000 now. Look for Starbucks coffee in a grocery store near you, then sit back and enjoy the exceptional taste of Starbucks at home. Shop at H&M. Be stylish. Be trendy. With women's clothes and accessories at the best quality and the best prices since 1947. Come to H&M and shop for women's clothing and accessories inspired by the latest fashion trends. Here at H&M, the master of cheap fashion, clothes cost the average price of $21.40. Wow, that's so cheap and affordable. I know, right? H&M offers fashion and quality clothing at an affordable price. So, what are you waiting for? Come shop at H&M today! Hashtag Hot and Modern Here's to choice, to making your voice be heard, to getting exactly what you want, especially when you eat. At Subway restaurants, you choose your freshly baked bread, meats, cheese, and veggies to make a sub that's just right for you. Come in and create yours today. Subway, eat fresh. What? Where's my Pringles? Who let the dog down? My belly. Yummy, yummy! Ow. Hello and welcome back to Norman's Corner. Now, before the break, we've talked about four of the basic tenets of research ethics with our expert, Madame Julia Navarrete. And now we continue with the fifth, which is cost benefit analysis. Now, tell us about that, Miss Jill. Well, this one is a bit of a synthesis of the second, which is responsibility lies with the experimenter. And the third, minimal risk versus at-risk, basic tenets. A cost-benefit analysis entails researchers to always compare the costs of doing the research with the expected benefits of the results. Doing a cost-benefit analysis is part of the responsibility of their ex experimenters because in that way, they are looking out for the safety of their participants. From that analysis, they will be able to determine just what risks they will be posing to the participants. So a cost-benefit analysis is essential or do you have to conduct it for large-scale experiments? Well, yes, it is essential and as I mentioned, it is part of the responsibility of the experimenter. But in terms of how necessary it is, I say that a cost-benefit analysis is even more important if the research costs involve deception. And what exactly does that mean? What is deception? 
Deception is when you use methods to hide the real purpose of the experiment from the participants because you want them to be as naive as possible. You want their performance to be natural so you know that what they are doing is not because of what is expected of them. Okay, that's very weird, but at the same time, it's very interesting. So experiments can deceive its participants, but a cost-benefit analysis should be used so that the deception wouldn't cross any lines or be too extreme? Yes, exactly. So, alright, that was the fifth basic tenant. Now we are down to the last one, which is... Confidentiality and debriefing. Tell us about that. It means that all subject data are kept confidential. The experiment can ask for the age, gender of the participants, but those info should be kept separate from the names. The briefing comes after the experiment. It's when you explain to the participants the real purpose of the experiment. This is where you don't deceive them anymore. Okay, so if I were a participant, my data will be kept separate from my name so you won't know that what the data belongs to rather? Yes, that's correct. A mark that an experiment was confidential is that if we can't trace the data to its owner, Right, okay, so there you have it, folks, the six basic tenets of research ethics. Now, just to have a recap, let's go over them one by one. The first is society decides what's right and wrong. Second is responsibility lies with the experimenter. Third, minimal risk versus at risk. Fourth, informed consent and freedom to decline. Fifth, cost-benefit analysis. And lastly, my favorite, confidentiality and debriefing procedures. For the next portion of our podcast, we've brought over two students from a local university. They are undergraduate students taking up experimental psychology this semester. And they are hoping to get some advice from our experts. So let's bring them in. Hi, good morning, Ayana. My name is Hannah, and this is my partner, Nicole. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you both. Thank you for taking the time to be here. So I understand you have questions about experimental psychology for our expert. Go ahead and ask him. Yes, okay. So, Ms. Navarrete, you were listening earlier and you mentioned that ethics is important and we shouldn't take it very lightly, right? Yes, that's right. Hmm. So, can you tell me, has there been, ever been any experiments throughout history that in any way discarded ethics in their procedures? Interesting question, Hannah. Well, I can tell you that yes, there have been several experiments that disregarded ethics in one way or another. The best example would be the Milgram shock experiment. It was carried out by Stanley Milgram. He was focusing on the conflict between obedience to authority and personal conscience. Ah, I see. What exactly did he do that disregarded ethics? So in the experiment, there was a learner and a teacher. The learner was taken into a room and electrodes were attached to his arm. The teacher and the experimenter went into a room next door that contained an electric shock generator and a row of switches marked with volts ranging from 15 to 450. The learner had to memorize a set of paired words and after memorizing, the teacher would give the first word and the learner would give the next word. If they made a mistake, the teacher would electrocute them. If it's their first mistake, it would be 15 volts. The number of the mistake is the basis for the voltage. The ethical problem is for the teacher because they are being deceived to a high degree. They don't know that the learner they are electrocuting is part of the team of experimenters and that he isn't really being electrocuted. Even when the participant wanted to withdraw, they were made to feel like it wasn't an option and so they continued on even though they didn't want to anymore. Oh wow, that sounds interesting. It's actually my first time hearing about that. 
Also, I heard from someone that there was this monster study that was conducted before, but I'm not sure what it's all about. Would you happen to be familiar with that experiment? Oh yes, I am familiar with that. Well, in that study, Dr. Wendell Johnson, a speech pathologist, wanted to show that the prevailing theories about the causes of stuttering were wrong. It was believed that at that time, stuttering was caused by genetics and heredity. In his experiment, children from orphanages were labeled as having a stutter or having no stutter to test the effects of labeling. Well, the results showed that the children who previously had no stutter had developed a stuttering due to the experiment. Dr. Johnson proved his point, but it was at the cost of the children's welfare. Gosh, that's terrible. Did they do anything to correct what they have done? It was their responsibility to do so. They tried to, but they failed. The effect was irreversible, and that's why it's called the monster study. The monster was brought about by the experiment, and it will be with the children for the rest of their lives. Well, that's really sad. Yes, well, those are two of the classic ex examples of experiments that violate research ethics. Do you have any other questions? Just one more before I let Nicole ask her questions. Um, regarding plagiarism, is it considered a violation of ethics when conducting experiments? That's another good question. The answer is yes, it is a form of fraud in science. To plagiarize is to represent someone else's ideas as your own, without giving proper credit. Other frauds in science include data falsification and fabrication of data. But then, how do we avoid plagiarizing? One way is to practice paraphrasing. That's when you express the meaning of something written or spoken using different words. This is especially important if the purpose is to achieve greater clarity of the work. Another way, and probably the most obvious one, is to remember to cite your sources in the correct format. Make sure you're using APA if you are citing from a psychology-related journal or article. Okay, I understand. Thank you so much. What about you, Nicole? Do you have any questions? Yes, well, I'd, I'd like to ask about animals as subjects and experiments because you see, I'm very fond of animals. I have a dog and a bunny at home, and I'd like to ask if there's a special organization or committee that looks after their rights. Actually, there is. It's called the APA Committee on Animal Research and Ethics. They're the ones that provide national guidelines for animal welfare, and those include standards for animal care. Oh, that's good to hear. I have another question though, regarding the IRB and the responsibility of the experimenters. Okay, what is it? What if the IRB approved of our experiment, but right before conducting it, we realized that we may be violating some ethical rules? What should we do? Well, as mentioned earlier, the responsibility always lies with the experimenter. It is up to them to decide whether to go on with the experiment. Wouldn't it be better to just automatically abandon the experiment? Well, if it really does violate the ethics of the research, then yes, it can be abandoned. But if they have used up a lot of resources like money and finding participants to make the experiment possible, then it can't be easily abandoned. If that's the case, then what should the researchers do? I think the best thing to do is consult the similar groups. They can ask for the advice of their colleagues and they may be able to provide new insights so the researchers can decide which way to go. Ah yes, I remember you mentioning that earlier. Thank you. Alright, are there any more questions? Nope, I'm all good now. Me too, I've asked them all. Well then, if there are no more questions, that is the end of our podcast. Thank you so much, guests, and to our expert, of course, Miss Jillian Navarrete, for coming today to talk about the one and the only research ethics. You're welcome, Ayana. It was a pleasure to be here. 
Thank you also once again to our two guests. I'm sure we were able to gain more insights and knowledge from your questions that they asked. Thank you for having us. It was fun to be here today. Thank you, Ayana. I'm going I'm to be listening to more Experimental Psych 101 podcast from now on. Well, that's all, folks. Tune in next time to see what topic we will be discussing next here at Norman's Corner. Once again, I'm Ayana, your host. Thank you and goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.